Hello everyone, this is Tracy Eide and I will be teaching on Titus 3. Here we are at the close of our study this year, amazingly enough, and the close of the book of Titus. I'd like to just take a moment and build a small rock pile like the Israelites did when God parted the Jordan River for them on their way into the promised land. They did it to remember God's faithfulness. We need to remind ourselves how many times God has spoken to us this year in all the different places we've been at. He's answered our prayers and showed us new and amazing things in his living word. So take some time and marvel at his goodness in that. We especially need to build rock piles in times like this that try our faith. So we'll have some time next week um, to have a sharing time on Zoom. I think that will be wonderful. So the book of Titus, it's a very short and succinct letter that Paul wrote to someone that he knew well and had worked with a lot. They had a lot of history together, so he didn't have to explain himself on everything. Some things that he spelled out for the churches and other letters, he assumes that Titus knows and understands here. So chapter three is power packed. Titus has long been a favorite book of church leaders with all its specific instructions for various groups. We've learned about doctrine and duty in the church in chapter 1, in the home in chapter 2, and now the focus is on doctrine and duty in society in chapter 3. A very practical and informative book that could be summed up with the idea that right theology leads to right behavior, or if what we believe is right, then we will do what is right. But that makes it sound so simple, and really it's rather complex to work out in everyday life. So chapter 3 starts out with a bunch of do's and don'ts on how we're to relate to society around us. It talks about being ready for good works and then moves on to a beautiful description of the gospel. Then it goes back to good works and do's and don'ts and ends with another plug for devoting ourselves to good works. It almost seems like Paul went off on a spiritual tangent in the middle of a focus on good works. We often hold good works and good behavior separately from all the gospel stuff. I know I've been saved by his death on the cross, but how does that help me do what is right? We're going to really look into that and remind ourselves how these things are crucially linked. Step one of understanding how the gospel plays out in our lives comes from the first few words of the chapters. Remind them. We tend to be very forgetful creatures and need to have a constant infusion of the truth. We need to be in his word daily have it posted around our homes, be teaching it to our children, and choose music that gets the truth circulating in our heads. Commentator John Stott talks about the importance of our reminding ministry, I love that, and says that all conscientious Christian teachers, once they have been delivered from the unhealthy lust for originality, should take pains to make old truths new and stale truths fresh. So I shall do my best. First, Paul wants Titus to remind the believers in Crete to be submissive to rulers and authorities. We learned in chapter 1 that many Cretans were insubordinate, the opposite of submissive. That can make for a chaotic society, and if we as believers don't respect and submit to the authorities around us, it hurts our witness as well. Last week, Joanna talked about our behavior being like a setting for the jewel of the gospel. During this crazy new normal of quarantine and a worldwide pandemic, 
we see the importance of this illustrated every day. So three weeks ago, I took my son to the park to play basketball while I walked around the trail. When we got there, someone with a big old roll of yellow police tape was cordoning off the basketball court and the trails. It was a beautiful spring day, and there were very few people around, so I was rather annoyed. On one hand, I understood that they were trying to keep kids from congregating there to decrease the spread of the virus. But on the other hand, I thought, can't you just trust us a little bit to stay at least six feet away from other people? I ended up letting him duck under the tape and shoot baskets by himself while I illegally walked the trails by myself. But I was later convicted reading this passage. Rulers and authorities are supposed to be about the greater good. If everyone did what I did, it would be bad. We're living through a time when it's crucial to listen to the authorities, obviously. But we need to watch our hearts and attitudes, too, because sometimes we conform outwardly, but inwardly we're complaining or filled with attitude. Jesus wants our hearts, not just our actions, plus our witnesses at stake here. What was I teaching my son when I told him to go ahead and play? This is exactly what I'm trying to to teach him that you need to obey even if you don't understand or agree. Submitting ourselves to that can be so hard. It's not just enough to be law-abiding, though. Stott uses the term that we're to be public-spirited as well, that we're to be for the greater good as well. Paul says that that we are to be ready for every good work. that we're to be proactive and plan ahead for good works, not just to respond when something comes in our path. How can we love and minister to those around us who might be struggling or alone right now? Look on the internet for ideas, brainstorm with your kids, be creative. Don't wait for someone to ask. It's also important to note when talking about submitting to authority that there are times when we should not submit to rulers and authorities, like when Their laws are contrary to God's. This is rare, but we can see it in Bible stories like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they would not bow down to false gods, when Daniel prayed despite the king's edict, or when Peter and John preached when they were ordered to stop. Even in more recent history, with Bonhoeffer's opposition to the Nazis, Corrie ten Boom and her family hiding Jews or Christians defying racial segregation in the 60s. But even if it comes to this, we can still do it with humility and respect to represent Christ in a beautiful way. This leads into the other instructions in this part of the chapter. There apparently were many in the church that were, according to verse 2, speaking evil of others, being quarrelsome, and in verse 9, engaging in foolish controversies and unprofitable arguments. This may be talking about Cretans from a couple thousand years ago, but does it not sound like the perfect description of elementary age siblings? Or some of the reality TV shows that are on now? Maybe it sounds like your coworker or your sister-in-law. Regardless, we're all familiar with this kind of divisive personality. As commentators Hughes and Chapel put it, they, quote, lust for the fray, incite its onset, and delight in being able to conquer another person. But they also say there's a difference between needing to divide and loving to divide. Sometimes it's helpful to debate a topic for working out ideas or to stimulate the mind. Sometimes 
someone might need to be reasoned with over his or her ideas or theology. But again, how it's done makes all the difference. Hughes and Chapel describe it beautifully. Quote, a person who loves the peace and purity of the church may be forced into division, but it's not his character. He enters arguments regrettably and infrequently. When forced to argue, he remains fair, truthful, and loving in his responses. He grieves to have to disagree with a brother. They also say, though, that, quote, this is not a doormat Christianity, passively letting people trample all over you, but is rather the exercise of the greater strength of not responding to evil with evil, as it talks about in 1 Peter 3, 9. How can we be this kind of person in our families, at work, and in our interactions at church and in political discussions? We all need to really spend some time examining our hearts for symptoms of divisiveness and examining our conversations for signs of pride and lack of gentleness. But lest we start to feel guilt and shame about our own struggles or get judgy when we think about others, Paul transitions into the gospel for us and for them. So I'm going to read this part, um, Titus 3, verses 3 to 7. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So let's break this down into three main parts, because it can get wordy and confusing. So the first part is our common state, second, God's intervention, and then third, the outcome. So first, our common state. After setting some high standards of behaviors to teach in the church, Paul puts himself, Titus, and us in the same camp as these kinds of people he's just described. He reminds us of how God saw us before how God saw us before Christ covered us with his righteousness. Coming into any relationship with humility immediately knocks down walls. It decreases quarrels and gives us perspective on foolish controversies. It also strengthens our witness when we don't present the gospel with arrogance, like, you should change and become like me. Hughes and Chapel wrote, quote, Such humility enables us to proclaim the gospel eye to eye with those who believe they will never measure up to the goodness they think we have attained by our own resolution and strength of character. They refer to it as the leveling truths of the gospel. So true. Remembering what we've been saved out of can also give us faith that God can rescue and change anyone. In the next part, God's intervention, the focus shifts from us and our actions to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit doing all of the action. He appeared. He saved. He washed. regenerated and renewed. He poured. He justified. 
there's also such a contrast from the foolish and disobedient of the verse before to the kindness, mercy, goodness, love, and grace of the one who did the saving. It answers very clearly the question of why this kind of saving would be done. It's because of who God is and what he is like. He also very clearly states what our salvation does not rest on in verse 5. It does not rest on our good works done by us in righteousness. That emphasis is so key in this chapter that three times says to devote ourselves to good works. That clearly is not why we do good works or why we are saved. Paul also explains how God intervened by the washing of regeneration accomplished by the Holy Spirit. This refers to the outward sign of baptism, which symbolizes the inward work of justification. Justification is another name for when we become a Christian, or God's acceptance of us when we admit our need for a Savior and believe. Our renewal is also part of the benefits package that we get when we're justified. Renewal is our Christian growth, our sanctification, making us no longer slaves to sin, and it too is accomplished by the Holy Spirit. This new state can be rather confusing. So we've been washed clean and declared righteous, but we're still sin, and we still struggle with our self-centered and prideful desires. What is the difference between then and now? The difference is that sin does not have to hold us, just like it didn't hold Jesus in the grave. When he was raised from the dead, he broke its power over us. And the key to that freedom is exactly what Satan hates, repentance, admitting that we have sinned and need a Savior. It says in Colossians 2.6, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. The way that we got into the kingdom by repenting and believing is the same exact way that we fight sin's power over us every day and allow the Holy Spirit to change us. It's that simple. We can take our road, our sin down the road of shame and guilt and trying to change ourselves, or we can be freed from slavery through repentance and trust in our God that has done mighty things. So being a good Christian does not mean not sinning. We will continue to sin every day that we live and breathe. Even someone who's been a Christian for 50 years does not necessarily sin less than they did at first. In fact, they probably see and understand their sinful tendencies more than they did when they were younger. Being a good Christian does mean, however, that we are constantly repenting and believing. Let me say it again. Being a good Christian looks like constantly repenting and believing. Full stop. Nothing added. The outcome of this gospel setup is in verse 6. The outcome is that the Holy Spirit is poured out on us richly. Lavishly, he gives us the grace that we need from his abundant, kind, and good heart. We get mercy, we get forgiveness of sins, acceptance, and relationship with the Holy God. The other benefit is that we are now heirs of everything that Jesus was going to inherit as the Son of God. And because of this, we have the hope of eternal life. 
This inheritance that we've received in part and someday we'll receive in full is supposed to help carry us and encourage us in hard times. When we have something really amazing to look forward to, it helps us to persevere in the race. Verse 8 marks all the preceding rich description as a, quote, trustworthy saying and a priority for Titus and all the church leaders to teach. And then the very important transition words, so that, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. The good works flow out of all that God has done for us, not the other way around. Good works flow out of gratitude for Him and relationship with Him. I'm going to end with a quick story to illustrate this. When we lived in Ukraine, we had a dog named Millie. She was a beautiful light tan golden retriever. Some of you may remember pictures of her from Facebook. She was very photogenic. She could have been one of those dogs on the dog food bags. But it was one of those situations where it was a good thing she was cute because she was not an easy one to train, a little bit on the thick side, shall we say. She was crazy about guests, though, and the world in general, as most Goldens are. In fact, her favorite pastime was trying to get out of our yard. She was just smart enough to figure out how to unlatch the gate, and then she would run free. She had found an amazing new world out there with all kinds of new smells and people to greet. The best part was that it neighborhood dumpsters, endless delectable treats to fill her tummy. By the time we would find her or somebody would call the phone number on her collar, her body would be ready to rid itself of the contents of the dumpster one way or another. But it would be just long enough since she ate that she would not make the logical connection that humans might make that the two events were even related. Sometimes she would break free on a nice sunny day in the winter when the nights would drop down to freezing. God did not create dogs to be able to think and plan ahead, so sometimes she would be in danger of freezing to death if she couldn't find her way home. Another danger of life outside the fence that she couldn't fathom was the fact that a beautiful purebred dog like her could fetch some good money on the internet and she might never see her beloved family again. Her brain cells were not made to be able to understand these dangers, nor were they capable of learning anything from these many experiences that came with her freedom. And for that very reason, we had a fence. I'm sure you can see where I'm going with this analogy. God has given us the law his word, because he loves us and wants to protect us. And we can think and understand much better than a dog, but still not near as much as our almighty God who made our brain cells. We often think, as teenagers do, that if we can't understand it or don't agree with it, that we shouldn't have to follow it. So why do we follow the law? Why do we try to do what's right and good and stay in the fence? Is it because we understand and agree? Well, sometimes, God made us to be like him and love justice and mercy and kindness. So yes, sometimes we stay in the fence and do what is good because we agree that it's good. But if we don't agree, what if we think we know better? What would be our motivation to do what's right? Well, back to the dog story, 
from my perspective, I didn't want my sweet puppy to stay in the fence because she agreed and understood that it was good. I wanted her to stay in the fence simply because she loved us and was happy being near us. I wanted her to trust us that the food we were giving her was the best thing that she could put in her body, better for her than what she could find at the dumpster. I wanted her to devote herself to doing good because of her devotion to me. I wanted her to love what I loved and hate what I hated because of our relationship. Do you see, God just wants us to lean into him and to fill our minds and hearts with what he has done for us and who he is and all of his goodness will overflow on us. When we are full of him and devoted to him, then all of the goodness, all of that goodness, will start to overflow from us to others. We will want to do nothing more than to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to be courteous, and do everything good. So we devote ourselves to doing good by devoting ourselves to Him. And we grow in doing good and being good, not by trying harder, but by acknowledging our need for a good Savior. Happy Easter, everyone. He has conquered sin and death indeed.